We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you gonna do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporland's interchangeable cartridge style Type Q and Type BQ uh, TEVs. Type Q is a conventional design and Type BQ is a balanced for TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those into a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. When it gets bad, just, just remember the weekend's coming. Even if it's Monday. We <laughs> worse. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel, Kevin Compass. What's going on this week, Kev? Oh, um, kind of bouncing around and uh, doing some did some condenser changeouts this morning, and uh, I don't know for the last four hours I've been working on my personal vehicle, and I never want to be a mechanic. I hate, I hate dealerships, and uh, yeah, that's fun. 
you know it's a bad time when my wife walks out in the garage and she sees a tap and die set and a welder sitting right next to the the truck and uh i'm just throwing things she's like i'm, I'm stepping away you should well, walk yeah. right back in the house see I've, I've heard you know just recently i heard that you you do get angry and you throw shit sometimes you throw shit in the motor rooms yeah, well sometimes sometimes it happens <laughs> You'll have that on the on those big jobs. Don't act like, don't act like you never threw anything. I have, I, honest to God, I've never have. Like, like, dude, you just threw that filter across the room. Now it's disintegrated. Oh man. No, I've ne no, I've yelled, yelled, and just complete, just, just as loud as I can. I the one time I did because I was, I couldn't find this fucking short, and uh, store manager comes up. He's like, "Are you okay? We thought we thought you got electrocuted or something. Something happened." I was like, "No." No home, just hating life right now. I've never, no, I've never thrown a tool or refrigerant <laughs> cylinder in anger, you know. So you should give it a try. It's a major stress reliever. <laughs> <laughs> holes in the back of my garage door from uh, wrenches skipping across the garage. <laughs> Where'd that ten millimeter go? It probably went three quarters of the way through that half inch drywall. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tonight we got a uh, you know Joe Sig from Coolsys Energy Design. Uh, he's going to be walking us through how to size uh, different components on on a CO two rack, going from shit. We'll do compressors and flash tank and lines and valves. Oh my, we'll do it all, right? Yeah, you good with that, Joe? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, hi, hi, I'm Joe Sig. I work for Coolsys Energy Design. We're a uh, we're part of the professional services branch of Coolsys, which is based out of Brea, California. Um, they're a nationwide, here's my plug. There's a, they're a nationwide contracting company. Uh, uh, they perform refrigeration, HVAC, electrical and plumbing services for a variety of different, uh, end users at this point, And they're always looking for more. Anyway, uh, I'm the refrigeration department head over at, uh, at Cool Energy Design. Uh, I'm directly involved with all the refrigeration work that comes in our door from engineering, uh, commissioning, um, uh, construction administration standpoint, uh, I deal with it all. So, you know, yeah, I'm here today to talk about uh, the, the mystery of CO2 systems and how they're put together from a sizing standpoint. Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, um, when, when you're putting together a, a CO2 design for a client um, from an engineering standpoint, you know, the, there really isn't a lot of difference from a DX system design standpoint to you know, when I'm talking DX, I'm talking synthetic refrigerants such as R4, R22, R404A, you know, R448A, R449A, R47A, so on and so forth. Um, those types of systems designs are, are not that far off from CO2. There is certain things that you need to worry about or think about when you're doing the design for a CO2 system. And the one big thing that I'll just get into at a high level right now, when you're sizing a CO2 system, the first thing you need to do is you need to critically analyze where the location is that you want to put this system in. If you're talking south of the Mason-Dixon line, you really need to think about temperatures of climates and how hot it's going to be in the summer months of that area. Um, CO2 has a, has, a, um, has a critical point of about 86 degrees. Uh, and, you know, once, once you get over that critical point, uh, the system will go into tr what's called transcritical mode, and the gas now becomes a multi-phase 
uh, mixture basically, and you can't. You, it's not a liquid. It's not a solid. It's not a. It's not a gas. You don't know what it is and what percentage of what constituent it is at that point. So what that does is when you're operating above 86 degrees head pressure, um, you, you you actually start to cause cost a lot more money and energy uh, spend from the system running because you know you, the, the system has to work a lot harder to maintain that refrigeration effect uh, in those those connected fixtures, things of that nature. Um, you know, so, so when we size our systems, you know, we'll, we'll use technologies, different technologies uh, to overcome those hotter ambient conditions. Uh, for example, we just finished a, a refrigerated warehouse in Houston, Texas, which is the armpit of the nation. Um, it's humid, it's hot, it's nasty. You know, it's just, it's just a bad, area for for ashray conditions smells bad smells well, bad. i'm not even getting into that because that doesn't affect refrigeration operation but, <laughs> but yeah but but i mean like so what we did there was we uh, we opted to go for uh parallel compression and we actually introduced ejector technology into that design which we're working with a partner an oem partner to put that into the system design for that that's that for that location um you know and and really when it comes down to it you with CO2 systems, you need to really worry. You need to worry a lot more about how much spare capacity you have on your compressors, your your gas coolers. Uh, you need to look at your line sets critically, because when you go from DX to CO2, your line sets can get a lot smaller because CO2 has a lot more BTUs per pound than conventional DX refrigerants. Um, you know, you're going to get about a three to one ratio of, of BTUs per pound from CO2 to a DX any DX refrigerant. And it, you don't you don't really get much subcooling at like in the flash tank, right? You know, I mean, for the most part, it's it's usually maybe what one to two degrees of subcooling. So you know, you're wouldn't you run the risk of, you know, getting ending ending up getting flash gas easier in the liquid line because there's that little of subcooling, and that's why we that's one of the reasons besides having a low saturated condensing temperature, but you know, also insulating that line to prevent it from you know flashing because of that low subcooling, correct? Well, so, so the reason that we insulate the liquid lines on a CO2 system is because the liquid coming off due to the hot, the, the hot gas bypass valve that's coming off of the flash tank, that's set to maintain roughly whatever, it's, it's this preset temperature, but it'll maintain a certain temperature in that tank by relieving the gas off the top of the tank. Um, typically, what we size to is we size the 38 degree liquid, mm -hmm. um, then we don't have to include a sub, a mechanical subcooler. Mm -hmm. um, and we just do that by utilizing the hot gas bypass valve and, and in conjunction with the with the head pressure valve. You're, you're, you're referring to the, the bypass gas valve, the line that comes from the flash tank to the medium temp suction. Correct. Exactly. Okay. I, just in case someone's like, well, what's a hot gas line? What's he talking about? I just want to make sure that yeah, we're so on that, the same page. Yeah. yeah. So that, that hot gas bypass valve, it comes, it, it is mounted. There's a port that comes off of the side of the, of the flash tank. And it's, and it's mounted up pretty high so that it can catch the, the gas and not the liquid. Um, and then that valve is a modulating valve that basically will modulate open and close to maintain a pressure inside that tank by bleeding off the gas to the medium temp uh, compressors, the suction of the medium temp compressors. So again, when we, when we insulate the low temp or, or the CO2 liquid lines, whether they're low or medium temp, we're, we're insulating them all typically uh, and the reason for that is we're getting low temperature or should I say, quote unquote, subcooled liquid temperatures going out to the fixtures. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that's that's a, another uh, you know little intric- intricacy of the of a CO two system is that you don't technically need mechanical subcooling if you program the system and set it up right from how you're how you're running it. So, for example, the uh, uh, the, the Hill Phoenix system, the Advancer system, uh, automatically includes all those valves in its standard design. So, you know, as long as it's commissioned and set up properly. Uh, you don't need to worry about any kind of subcooling whatsoever because you're going to get it off of the flash tank. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And and usually the reason why your load is so important is because, you know, not only do you have the load of the refrigeration for those medium temp compressors coming off of those cases, right? Mm-hmm. You also have the load from the actual low temp compressors discharging into there, right? You okay. also have your hot, potentially hot gas bypass, you know, for low, either load control or, or low or low superheat control, right? You yep. potentially have liquid injection. And on top of all those things, you, you know, your, your low, your gas to liquid ratio versus when you're in transcritical versus subcritical. Like, so if you're running subcritical, from my understanding, it's usually about 50% liquid being created and uh, I'm sorry, 70% liquid being created and 30% vapor. And then when you run that transcritical mode, that's, it decreases because now your gas cooler is just that it's just desuperheating. So now you you have about a 50, 50 mix versus, you know, liquid versus vapor creation. And you'll see more compressors run when you're transcritical because of that. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Okay. And what you'll see actually, when you go into transcritical mode is you'll see that flash tank level drop because you're getting a mixed phase coming back rather than a full column of liquid, your condenser quote unquote, which is yeah. condensing the gas into a liquid at subcritical conditions is now a gas cooler, which is only cooling the gas down as much as it can with the ambient conditions. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, so we, you know, when we're sizing compressors for a for a CO two system and and gas coolers, we need to make sure we have enough spare capacity to overcome those transcritical conditions when the system is operating inefficiently, when the system is operating not at its peak. Um, you know, typically on medium temp and, and low temp, doesn't matter which group, which, uh, you know, which which uh, type of load group you're talking about. We're looking at somewhere from the neighbor in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 percent spare capacity on our compressors. That's what we're looking for. Okay. Um, on standard DX systems, you're looking for any, anywhere from 10 to 12 percent. So we bump up that we bump up that spare capacity because we know that when it gets to be 100 degrees outside, those compressors are going to have to work extra hard. To make to make that system keep on operating the way it, the way it's supposed to. So if you were to size it for the load of the cases, right? Yep. The medium temp compressors I'm talking about. If you would size it for the load of the cases, and then you would size it for the load of the compressors going into it, yep. and then basically whatever that would end up being, you would add twenty percent for that that transcritical operation. Is that correct? Correct. Exactly. That's, that's a rough guesstimate, right? That, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, you're in the neighborhood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, that's that's yeah, an yeah. educated guesstimate. That's a what? Educated guesstimate? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rough guesstimate when you're engineering things. <laughs> so, so I'll take it. I'll take an example of a project that I just designed. Um, you know, I had a, on my low temp, on my low temp group, I had a, sorry, on my medium temp group of the CO2 system. Uh, you know, we were condensing at 87 degrees, which is actually in the transcritical range because you're above 86. Um, we sized our compressors. We had a, we had a total load on that group of, 616 and a half MBH. Um, we ended up sizing the compressors for 789.5% uh, or 0.5 MBH. And that gave us 28.05% spare capacity. 
and, and that helps when you're on the media, when you're in the medium temp side of, side of life, you need to consider that you need that medium temp in order to run the low temp. So if your medium temp fails, your low temp fails too. Um, that's a critically important thing that everybody needs to consider when you're putting in a, CO, a transcritical CO2 system. Um, so let's see. Uh, so so what I can do is I can kind of share. Uh, let, me, let me share some stuff here. Let's do it. Uh, share screen. So while, while Joe's doing that, Kev, today I was I was making some training up and because uh, someone told me they wanted a training for a certain customer and they're like, yeah, it's liquid pump overfeed. And I, I basically got the liquid pump overfeed stuff doing, like I started making the program and stuff. And then I get an email with uh, with the program and I'm reading through the program, I'm like, wait a minute, this is like all the things for, you know, that's, that are usually in there, like the pump, you know, all the, all the pump stuff and, you know, the vessel, just everything, it was typically for a liquid overfeed system. And then all of a sudden I started seeing some like cascade stuff. Like it had a high pressure of like 480. And I'm like, what the hell's going on here? So I emailed them like, can you guys send me like some pictures? And here it's one of those systems that it's a liquid pump overfeed, but it's also a cascade all in one. Yeah, have we, have a, seen... we have a couple out here. Yeah. They suck to work on. Nah, well, I guess you, we'll find out. You got all the problem. You got all the problems of the liquid pumped overfeed, like the condensation issues, the insulation issues, the the massive amount of CO2 it needs. Yep. Mm. All right. All right so, this, so this uh, this is a project that we just finished, and um, basically I, what I have open is I have my schedule open, um, just to kind of show the loads that are connected to the system, mm -hmm. uh, the compressors that we chose, and just some salient features of the of the system. Um, showing uh, you know at the over the, over on the other side here, we show the gas coolers uh, that we selected, mm -hmm. and uh, we actually used these superheaters on this project, uh, a separate a separate gas cooler. That basically, uh, you know, desuperheats the um, desuperheats the low temp low temp gas prior to uh, putting it into the medium temp group. So oh, get you. That's such a tricky line to walk, especially like out by us. Yeah. Like, it, it that could quickly turn into the compressor murderer five thousand. <laughs> yeah. What ends up happening, Joe, if the if the line gets too cold, where it actually starts condensing in there, yep. those heat exchangers do not like that at all. Really. Yeah, and then like if they if they get liquid that's created from the D superheater, because um, we've had it just here in Texas. Well, Brett, and it... Brett, these are like uh, actual transcritical. What they're doing is they're running the low temp up through a loop of the gas cooler, and they use it to desuperheat, and then they dump it back in the medium temp, so that way it doesn't put as much load in hot hot gas into the medium temp. Oh, but then if it does condense, that means those medium temp compressors are just going to get a slug of liquid. Correct. We did a couple Costco's with that with zero. Oh. And, uh, they had the valve set wrong the one time, and it was like uh, ten degrees outside. Was <laughs> shaking <laughs> as soon as the three-way valve opened up. <laughs> you start hearing the compressors going. Clon, 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 clon. Yeah, it was. It, they sounded like a you know like a 1986 Honda Accord <laughs> that hasn't been taken care of. <laughs> Just like just the squeal of death. <laughs> All right. So what are we looking at? So what we're looking at here, this facility has it's a large uh, it's a large seafood freezer operation. Basically, um, they were what the what the scope of work was here is they they had an, they have an existing facility about fifty thousand square feet. They're looking to put another hundred thousand square feet beside it uh, and expand that facility. 
Mm-hmm. So, so basically, what we the, what we were tasked with doing was, right now they have a they have all um, rooftop condensing units, standard DX refrigerant serving evaporators in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to get rid of all that and go to a centralized CO two system design. So what we what we we split the load up, uh, the new loads and the existing loads. We did the whole thing. Um, we we put the loads on two separate systems. Um, we have you know. Compressor rack A and compressor rack B here. Um, and the reason we did that was just for redundancy. Um, if one rack goes down or has to go down for service, they can keep half the facility up and running. We, ha- we interlace the evaporators and the spaces so that they can keep temperature in the spaces while they're working on one of the systems. Um, and that's one important thing to consider because, you know, it's more important with a CO2 system than it is with a DX system when you're talking about redundancy um, and large walk-in spaces like this because... Like I said, if you're if you take down the medium temp, you're taking down the low temp as well. So I have a question because like everybody has a, a different flash, a flash a flash tank pressure that they that they hold. Like I see yours saying 38 degrees, right? Yep. Um, I'd have to get a PT chart out. I'm assuming it's going to be close to you know probably 520 or something like that. But Aaron, anyway, I can, bring, I can bring that up right now. Just bear with me. I'll say exactly what it is. So my question is, what like why do some people do you know that you know thirty eight degrees, and then you see some RS schedules that say thirty three degrees. So what is, what is the benefit, or what you know why why the difference in flash flash tank pressure? It doesn't it doesn't there is no rhyme or reason. There is no standard. Um, you know anywhere in the thirties is good. Some mm-hmm. manufacturers prefer thirty three. Some Trump prefer thirty five. We've standardized on thirty eight because okay. it gets you up near that nice. You know, that nice 40 degree mark where you're not <clears throat> subcooling, you're not sending, you know, wild subcooled liquid out. It's just mi- minorly subcooled, okay. like a standard, right. standard DX system. So I would, I would rather see it that high because then you avoid the oil issues, you avoid um, flash off issues with the valve sizing, like running the higher, fl- and, and it's more efficient. True. You yeah, because your BGV is not opening up nearly as much. Yeah, you, you have less flash gas load. So as you guys can see here, I put in 38 uh, vapor pressures. You know, pressure is 536. That's yeah. what you're looking at. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, so yeah, basically, you know, um, we chose we went with Gutner because uh, they're really good with industrial evaporators. Yeah. Um, yeah, we like them a lot because they're single circuit. Uh, they're they're all stainless steel. Um, they they come factory installed with the Danfoss uh, CCMT valve, which is really nice. Uh, which the CCMT is the is the, the the industrial brother of the AKV valve, the Danfoss AKV, which is the pulse, you know, the pulse um, the EEV basically. That's used in supermarkets. So all the all the piping on this facility is it uh, is it is it regular standard copper? Uh, you know, is it is it HXP? Is it stainless? We went with all stainless all stainless on this job. Damn, uh, well, that's what the, that's what the client wanted. Do they orbital weld it, or do they do it by hand? They're doing all welding, all welded copper, yeah. Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries Serviceable Oil Floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it. With their new line of serviceable oil floats, these floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency, and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. 
These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field-proven in supermarket applications. Westmire Industries offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross-compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. No, I mean, like, are, are they are they using the orbital welding machine, or are they are they actually TIG welding by hand? Oh, no, 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 they're doing it all by hand. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a long, long, arduous process, but that's what they wanted. So, um, and they wanted to make sure that they they wanted them to do it by hand because they want to be able to monitor the process. The, the owner wanted to monitor the process and make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to do. Damn. Yeah. They're, 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 this owner is not a not a uh, quote unquote dummy. I mean, he he knows what he's dealing with here. Yeah, the, the the from TIG welding, if they don't flow argon through there, like the breath, the the amount of like soot and like they call it sugar dust. Yep. The, there is like ten times worse than than burning pipe, you know, copper without uh, purge nitrogen. Damn. It's sure. like it's like this thick yellow soot. It, it comes from the slag from the TIG, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah. from the in the air, from the, the 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 actual process of the argon when they're when they're when it's the TIG torch is using it the in the air on the inside it like causes it to just condense and make that slag. Oh wow! Oh wow! That's crazy. So so what you can see here, I'm just going to show you guys my plans real quick. You can see we have these two large refrigeration enclosures. Uh, they're actually walk-in houses uh, with the gas coolers and the. Um, these superheaters mounted above there. Are those abatic or are they dry cooler? These are these are Guntner adiabatic condensers. Adiabatic gas. Those are freaking huge. What's that? Two, four, six, eight, ten. It's a sixteen fan. Damn. Yeah, they make them that big. They do. Well, I just that's that's huge. You don't see. I mean, you got you know, unless you work on industrial stuff all the time, you're not going to see equipment this big, right? Yeah. You know, like if you're working on supermarkets, you're only going to see a two by three, two by four. Uh, or whatever, you know. It's it's been a minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, racks, or did you guys uh, uh, sub that out to like one of the OEMs? So we subbed it out to an OEM. Um, we worked closely with them on the design side of things. We we actually enforced. We picked an OEM. The owner agreed. We went with the OEM, and we made them comply with our design requirements. Um, that's that's one thing that we do at Coolsys Energy Design that not a lot of other engin other engineers I see do. A lot of times, you know, when you're working with an OEM, you get what you get because that's they they strong arm you. You know what I mean? They say this is what we got and this is what you're getting. Well, no, I, I'm not willing to listen to that when I'm when it comes to me because if I'm talking about a design, I'm already three weeks into it when I'm talking to you. You know, like so basically, what we did was we brought it as you can see here. Uh, you know, here's our pipe sizes, um, kind of shown here. You know, we, we've got four-inch horizontal suction, three-inch liquid, two-inch hot gas, uh, supply and return. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's inch a, liquid. That's a lot of BTUs. We got a lot of BTUs in this facility. Shit. I mean, this is just one side of it. Here's the other side. This is the new addition. Penthouse evaporators. That's a lot of stainless steel. Oh, are those the the out, like the one that has the owl on it? What the hell is that called? Wise. Wise. Are those wise ones? Wise? What do you mean? 
No, the manufacturer, the penthouse evaporators. Oh, no, no. So the penthouses are getting stick built by the IMP lid, by the IMP manufacturer. Okay. Oh, and they're just Gutner's. And they're just Gutner coils. They're, 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 they're no, it's just a bare coil, basically. Okay. No, because like. fan motors on the one side. And what we do, what we're doing is we're ducting it down and then shooting it out 45 degrees. The reason why I was asking is because like when I did industrial, you know, they had uh, these wise penthouse for like, you know, chocolate storage, you know what I mean, yeah. for shipping. And yeah. it's just literally a penthouse that just gets sat on there. And then just the ammonia piping just gets hooked up to the outside. Like we all came in like one big container. It wasn't stick filled up. Oh, so, oh, so you picked it up and set it on the roof and then yes. piped it up and you're done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's insulated and shit, kind of like what this yeah. is looking like, but it's just, it just comes as one package, just sets right on the roof. Wow. Wow. That's pretty cool. I mean, uh, I'm getting ready to start up another project mm-hmm. where we're going to be doing interstitial space penthouses above a freezer, a new freezer. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, we'll have to talk about that offline. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, this is the new freezer uh, expansion. Um, four penthouses, eight evaporators total, large, large industrial evaporators, <clears throat> um, you know, centrally located throughout the space to even, even throw even airflow across the space. Yeah. Um, you know, we are using, we, we chose to go with, um, you know, EEVs for control, uh, with case controllers. Um, we're, we went with a Danfoss system, uh, because they're pretty much the leader when it comes to CO2 system control. Um, I challenge someone to tell me differently. Uh, the, the, the Canadians would disagree up north. <laughs> oh yeah. Microtherma. Oh yeah. 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 I know. <laughs> uh, as you can see here, we're showing you know, all our sensors for defrost termination, the EV, you know, return sensor, return temperature, uh, supply temperature, pressure, so on and so forth. All things you need, you know, hot gas solenoid valve, liquid solenoid valve. Who, who's, who, who's EMS guy? Who, uh, who's, what, what manufacturer are you using? Uh, Dan Foss. Oh, okay. Yeah, here I'll show you our. Uh, I'll show you our one line. So oh, you can see yeah. here. There you go, Dan Foss AK SM880. Well, uh, that's, what, that's what I was getting. At. I was wondering what case controllers you were using to operate that. I didn't know if you went like I don't. I don't know if like Opto Twenty Two has has case controllers and shit. That's why I was asking. Yeah, so we went with the we went with the CC five fifty, which is the individual case controller. It only controls one valve to one mm-hmm. coil. Um, they do. Danfoss had keyword being had the AKCC seven fifty, but that's now getting phased out. They're not. They're no longer offering that. You have one right there. Yeah, does up to four valves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're now coming out with these new controllers. Uh, they now require 120 volt valves, um, and they're changing the whole game of how things are done from an EMS standpoint. So, so now going back to my legend. Um, oh, oh, wrong legend. Was that a chicken? Was that a chicken? I don't know. Your background looked like a chicken or a rooster. No, my background is is my wife and I at our at our wedding. Oh, that was really quick. I didn't see it that fast. <laughs> we got yeah. married in a, we got married in a brewery. <laughs> so if you look closely, you'll see it's all the cans that are all lined up next to us and behind us. See, I thought this was the red part, and that was white. Fe- Never mind. I just I saw it really quick, and I was trying to catch what it was. Sorry. All good. <laughs> so if we look here, if we look here at how we size the system, um, this is the low temp side of, of rack A. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'll see that I only put, I only allowed for seven, about seven and a half percent spare on the low temp. 
the reason for that is, um, you know, we're, sh we're sharing we're sharing some spare with the medium temp, believe it or not, um, because if the medium temp compressors are oversized, they're going to do a lot of the work that the low temp doesn't need to do. So you don't need to go as wild with with the low temp as you do with the medium temp, which you see here. I got twenty eight and a half percent on a medium temp, or twenty eight point oh five percent on the medium temp. So you're doing conventional booster. You're not doing parallel compression, right? Correct. We 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 actually looked at parallel compression. This this project is in New Jersey, um, so we didn't end up needing parallel compression because the ambient conditions didn't require it. Okay. Parallel compression is good for. Situations where you need to bypass gas around the medium temp compressors to keep the operation of the system up and running. Parallel compression is good for high ambient conditions. Uh, you know, situations where you're going to run transcritical most of the time. The parallel compression helps keep you down in the subcritical range. So the ROI for a place like New Jersey wouldn't be wouldn't be beneficial. But you put a rack like that down in like Houston, Texas. You'd have, you know, you you need that parallel compression to save the energy consumption versus what it would cost the equipment, the VFD, the compressor. You know what I mean, right? And that's and really, uh, Brett, that's really what it, what it all comes down to when you're designing a CO2 system. What you're trying to do, and what we've been trying to do over these last couple installations that we've done, designed, we're trying to prove to these end users that yes, CO2 is the way to go as long as it's designed correctly. It'll be energy parity and possibly energy favorable to a DX system. Mm -hmm. And we have to design it accordingly so that they can see the proof in the pudding when, once it gets installed. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so that, that's where, that's where we stand right now. Um, and then, and then as far as the uh, gas cooler is concerned, um, if you come over here, you can see that we still design it on a TD. Uh, you know, we can see that this, this, this gas cooler has an operational capacity of 6,600 MBH. And 10 degree TD, okay. And a 10 degree design TD with an actual TD of 7.82. So we're right around, you know, what a DX system would get you. Do you do you get do you get more total heat rejection? I, I guess you wouldn't. You wouldn't get any more total heat rejection out of a CO2 booster system as what you typically would because basically you have less compression ratios, which means less discharge superheat, correct? Correct, exactly. Okay. And, and and you also you're circulating. You got to think about this. Your mass flow is is drastically uh, lowered from a DX system, so you're not passing as much gas around the system as you would with a DX system. What were you going to say, Kev? No. Oh, I thought you. <laughs> Sorry. And you know that you know that the more the more gas that you have to handle in a refrigeration system, the more load it incurs on the system. Mm -hmm. um, you know when when your when your refrigerant gets three times more BTUs per pound than a standard DX refrigerant, it's obviously going to be more efficient from a, from a, from a stamp, from a, you know, every standpoint, basically. Gotcha. So, and then, and then, yeah, what, like we were talking about before with the desuperators, uh, we specified a small, you know, one by two, uh, just standard air cooled gas cooler mm -hmm. uh, for the, for the desuperator, yeah. uh, just to, just to temper, just to temper the, the low temp gas coming off of those compressors. That's a pretty big D superheater for weighing five hundred and thirty-two pounds. Yeah, well, it's only one. It's only one by two, um, but it's got a pretty good amount of capacity because it's kind of tall. Gotcha. So, so yeah. Uh, so yeah. Then if I go into uh, let's let's go into our. I'm going to go into my calculations folder here. I'll open up some uh, compressor calculations. So now, as you can see here, 
we have a couple iterations of our uh, our, our rack selections. Gotcha. Uh, one with parallel compression here. I'll open that first so you can kind of get a look at that. Um, now you see this is the Bitzer. This is right out of the Bitzer software. Mm -hmm. Here's, here's the, um, the you know the diagrammatic of the system. Okay. Well, you know you have your low temp cases here or low temp fixtures here. You got your low temp compressors over here. This is your D superheater here. These are your medium temp fixtures here, and then these are your medium temp compressors here. This is your parallel compression right here. Oh, so you ran it with that to see how much energy it would consume versus whatever in the high or in the ambient the jersey gets. Yes, what I did okay. was I looked at the COP of a system with parallel compression versus yeah. a system without, and it and it actually worked out in favor of not having parallel compression. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so. I'm really lame, but that's so cool. <laughs> um, and then you know they they guide you through the whole selection process. Uh, you, you you can actually the Bitzer software is really neat because. You can select any combination of compressors. You just tell it how many number, how many compressors you want, and then you select how big they want, to, how big you want them to be. In this specific situation, we didn't want fifty horse compressors across the board, so we went with more low temp compressors because they're easier to replace or easier to source and replace. Oh, gotcha! Instead of okay. having to get, get some big big bastard. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Now, there is a company that's coming in the door from Italy. Uh, their name is Doran Comp Doran Compressors. Um, they're, they're coming in hot and heavy in the United States right now, and they have a wonderful, wonderful offering for a compressor. Um, they actually, yes. So actually, I'm not going to reveal any trade secrets, but the, 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 the one big benefit I see is that they have a pocket inside of their compressor where all the discharge gas goes. It doesn't go into the main crankcase of the compressor. It's channeled into a separate, a separate cavity inside the compressor. And, really? it keeps, and it keeps the compressor cool. Hmm. It's very, very neat. So that would be less less uh, total heat rejection then, right? Less less heat add into the system from the compressor yeah. itself, you know? Like, yeah, you know, you don't have to worry now about, uh, about, you know, adding in the KW of the compressor into your heat load. Oh, shit, I didn't think about that. Yep, yep. Yeah, because we all... We we all know what the calculation for THR is, right? See, I love talking to you because then it makes me realize how much I really don't know about anything. The calculation for THR is quite simple. If you know two things about your compressor, if you know the capacity of the compressor and you know mm -hmm. the KW consumption of the compressor, mm -hmm. it's basically capacity plus three point four one three times mm -hmm. the KW. That gives you your THR for the compressor. Damn, I gotta write that down sometime. Okay. And basically what you're doing is you're converting KW to MBH. That's it. And then added them two together. Oh, that's all you're doing. That's all, that's you're, all, doing. You're, that's all you're doing. Yeah. I just hope it won't do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> hear that, Doreen? You need to get on it and get an app out so we, we have those calculations. Actually, Doreen does have an app. So I will... Ah, uh, come on. I'll send really? you guys a link when I'm all done with this. God, I hate you. <laughs> There's all this stuff you have and you don't share. Yes, I do. I just don't share it until you ask for it. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know. I need it until you tell me it exists. <laughs> and that's why these conversations are good, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, you, so you'll see here one other thing that's different with a CO2 system that you're not going to see with a DX system. We like to size our compressors fairly evenly. Um, we don't like uneven stepping, unlike supermarket designs, where we like uneven stepping. Um, because, you know, especially in this given instance, this is a large refrigerated warehouse. We're not going to have a lot of load variation. 
And we don't want, you know, we're not going to have a lot of steps in our in our capacity requirements. So we just size a bunch of compressors, all the same size, put a VFD on the lead, and off you run, off you go. Then you get zero, you get zero to one hundred percent modulation because you have all your compressor size the same with one VFD. You ramp down, turn a compressor off, ramp back up, ramp down, turn blah blah blah, go on and go, you know, do the, do it that way basically. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. So, so, um, and now, you know, you can see that I'm riding the line here for the, uh, I'm riding the line of the application win uh, window for the um, medium, uh, for the medium temp compressors. But, uh, you know, this is one thing that they, they show you in the Pitzer software that's really neat. It shows you where your condition is, lies in the operating envelope of the compressor you're choosing. You're living on the wild side for that first one, man. Yeah, well, that's, I believe that's the parallel compression. So, oh, okay. So that's only needed in, in you know extreme situations, basically. Gotcha. And then and then they give you a little PT chart, kind of show you how the cycle works, basically. Um, you know. So, so let me ask you a question, because I mean, you know, Jersey isn't not necessarily the, like the most not humid place in the world. So sure. I mean, why why abatic over over dry? So okay, so so let me bring up my ashray conditions for New Jersey. I'm, I'm sorry, because I'm wondering, because like I'm wondering like. You know, typically, uh, you know, how much energy do you really get out of an abatic? Is I mean, is that maybe that's why you're only getting a 10 degree TD rather than it, a five? It, it really depends on your ambient conditions. And here's the kicker: when you're going, when you're sizing gas coolers, the mm -hmm. decision to go from dry to adiabatic mm -hmm. really depends on the differential between your wet bulb and your dry bulb. If your wet bulb is 10 degrees or more lower than your dry bulb, go mm -hmm. adiabatic every time. Well, one more time, if if you said it again, if your wet bulb uh -huh. Ambient wet bulb on your ashray, uh, uh -huh. you know, printout is more than ten degrees less than the dry bulb. You go okay. adiabatic every single time because you're going to get the bang for your buck out of it. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right, because you're able to lower that head pretty far. Right. Now, I, I, I've always been kicking this around. Like that, that you 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 save a little bit of energy in the head. Yep. But your water costs are through the roof. It depends on what type. Okay, so I'll, I'll address that elephant in the room. It really depends on what brand, what manufacturer of adiabatic gas cooler you use. If you use a Baltimore Baltimore air coil unit, the Trillium, that yeah. recycles the water and only dumps once a day. Correct. Guntner and Evapco, they fill and drain continuously. So then your water usage goes through the roof. So, yeah, I mean, like in places like Chicago, like – I mean, we, we had a customer put a Gutner in, and yep. it's using a massive amount of water. Well, they're getting a massive bill. So well, that might that might have to do with the fact there's onboard controls in that in that gas cooler, right? Yeah. So it may be that 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 piece that piece of equipment never got commissioned properly, and it's just dumping. You know what I mean? That's a high probability. Those things typically need to always be programmed. They send well, you that thing on the thumb drive and stuff. They're, they're programmed. What's that? They're programmed. They are, they are programmed. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I personally, I prefer the BAC, the BAC unit to any other manufacturer because they recycle their water. Um, yeah. They only dump once every 24 hours. They, um, they, are, they are a nice unit. Yeah, and and you know, yeah, and and they they have the pads readily available for replacement if necessary. They have the EBM PAPS motors readily available if you need to replace them. They're not like a you know they're not a manufacturer that's not supporting their product. You know what I mean? 
so check this out. When we were down in HR, we had a conversation. There was a, a over in, I don't know if it was in Europe, but some places are actually starting to take uh, their, their condensate water out of their cases because yep. the solids are basically going to drop out. You know what yep. I mean? So they have to briefly filter that water. Mm -hmm. they, you then use that water to refill the abatic. That's a smart, that's a smart idea. Right. That's, a really, that's a really smart idea. Think about it, because yeah. it's already going to be filtered. All, all the shit's going to fall out of it. And now you have nice cold water that you can basically just put in that abatic. So how much how much more extra capacity? Oh, it's really hot out. We'll just let it, you know, let that water just pump up there. Sure, sure. I mean, like places like California where they're like dictators with the water. I mean, that would be like perfect. That, that, that particular stuff was in South Africa. He was telling us that, Brett. No, is that where it was? Okay, I could remember. Yeah. He he does stuff all over the place, so I can remember you know where the hell it was. We talked about so much shit. Oh, let me close my door real quick. That's the loudest door ever. <laughs> I drew that door you have that you need to oil the hinges every time your kids open it. It sounds like a creaky old man. <laughs> nice. All right, so now we've we've gone through compressor sizing. We've kind of gone through the idea of gaddy gas coolers versus dry. dry. Mm -hmm. um, we've we haven't really gone through here. I want to take you through. Let me let me start up another session of my Microsoft Edge. I'll take you over to the Baltimore Air Coil site, and I'll kind of show you how they uh, help us with gas cooler selections. Oh look, I know that site. Yeah. <laughs> 